Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey, welcome everybody to Training with Casey. And we talk about more than training. We talk about all things animals, really. And I had promised to continue with our story of getting ready to bring my horses home. And so last time we left it, that uh, we were going to work with contractors to get our land ready. It's a, just a you know a few acres, but we needed to clear the saplings from one of the acres. So we asked some of the people that we work with for recommendations for somebody that did earthworks. And the first one, I don't really understand what happened. But basically, it seemed like we had come to an agreement and we were ready to get started. And the people said they would be back in a couple of days with an estimate and they just disappeared. But not before stringing us along for over a month. And so we started right after Thanksgiving of last year trying to get this done. And we didn't even know until Christmas or New Year's that that was not going to work. So we um, got another recommendation. And these people were great. They came and they talked with us. Uh, Well, actually, it's a private business that does this. Shout out to affordable dozier and um, the gentleman that helped us specifically is the younger generation of affordable dozier and that's carson heath and he came gave us an estimate uh said it would probably take him a couple of weeks to get there he was there within a couple of days the guy is a monster he got so much done so quickly But we had to clear all the um, trunks, you know, all the sapling roots and so on that could be dangerous for the horses. And heck with the horses, they were dangerous for me. I've fallen several times just walking across that field because I would get my feet caught on vines or the stumps of these trees. And we didn't want that happening to the horses. So he had to come and grub this land and pick out all these roots, which he piled along the sides. That's going to be the windrow. The windrow starts with all the trees and lumber and wood piles that you've been accumulating. And then you add all the roots, not the vines. Do not add the vines. And then from there you can add soil, cardboard, compost, uh, clippings, leaves, whatever you have. We're going to add horse manure. 
And then we're also going to start things like uh, we hope to plant some mayhaws and raspberry bushes, um, we'll plant goldenrod, plantain, all kinds of different valuable plants, uh, dandelions. Man, those things are wonderful for us and the horses. So that was the plan we did. Um, we made all these windrows, Carson did. He moved all these trees out. He just picked them up and took them over there. We had a very problematic Bradford pear tree. And Bradfords are genetically modified. So lots of trunks grow right out of the crown. And it looks good at first, right? It looks like a little lollipop tree. But it starves itself. The compression from all those trunks growing out of the crown kills off some of them. And we came home in 2015 to find our huge Bradford pear. The entire core, the center of it, had fallen over while we were on our trip. And it took us a long time to get that cleaned up. And that was the source of our first three Google beds. And cleaning up the rest of it, which um, Carson and his dad helped us with, is what made our fourth Hugel bed and a lot of the windrow. So we put all that out there. And the point of the windrow is to recycle these things and put them to good use. And that good use is to protect the property from wind, from herbicide and pesticide drift, to give us a place to compost the horse manure, to give us a place to grow beetles and so on that are good for our garden, give a place for the snakes to live, for the rats to live, so the uh, hawks, eagles, owls, can, and the rat and the snakes can come get them, place for plants to grow, um, so that they can make kind of a salad for the horses. Because we know with human nutrition, and um, I, it's got to be true for horses too, they need lots of different kinds of vegetation in order to get all these little, you know, um, phytonutrients. And now I can't think of the other word for it, phytonutrients. Yeah, well, you guys know what I'm talking about. All this good stuff that we need from plants. So contractors and more contractors. And I'm sure all the people were good, but something didn't sink with the first set. And that was very discouraging and really wasted a lot of our time. But the second group, uh, the second people, they've been absolutely great to work with. And you know, it's really been good too, because um, we've been able to figure out how to work together. So when we first hired um, Carson to help us, we didn't really know how big each job was and how possible it was and what else we would need. So, for example, one of the things we didn't anticipate, which we did need, was cleaning out the swales as well as making a ditch. 
So when we started, we knew we'd have to grub the property and we thought we needed to make a ditch on each side and we knew we wanted to make a round pen for exercise because you can't walk around the property here all the time because of the rain and the mud and all that. Okay, so we we're gonna get all that done, but turns out we had a lot of wood that needed to be moved. And I got sidetracked on the Bradford Pear story, but um, we came home, it had fallen over, and then it had a bunch of trunks still growing up. And Dave was able to take a lot of those down and put them to other uses. But there were three that we could not drop without endangering our house. And we didn't even know this was possible when we first contacted Carson. But he and his dad came in and just grabbed this tree and held it in place so it wouldn't drop on the house while somebody sought it out from underneath. And then they just carried it away to the windrow. So what could have been fatal for us was child's play for them. And we've also moved huge logs around. And uh, we have we have a strange thing that came from me collecting all the little branches from the pecan trees because it's good wood. And I, of course, am going to make rocket stoves and we can use all that um, to fuel these stoves. What we didn't count on is the birds love this. So we had them under a shelter. You know, it's kind of like a carport with a concrete deck. And I just kept stacking up what is essentially kindling. And I didn't pay too much attention to it. Well, the birds came in. And if I go over there in the wintertime, like five or six birds will fly out of this stack of branches. Then all of a sudden I started noticing, boy, there's a lot of leaves and pine straw in there. I guess the birds were bringing all this stuff. Well, anyway, now we have these piles. They're so full of pine straw and leaves that we got to do something with it. So Carson's going to come and take that all and add it to the windrow. That'll be the top layer. So the next thing we had to do is take that outline that I was telling you about and move from plan to action. So the first part of the action was to facilitate all the earthworks. And um, in doing that, we, we really got a break with Carson because one of the things that we were able to do is ask him to organize certain things. Uh, for example, when doing the round pen, he actually ordered the sand and coordinated with the people to deliver the sand so that he could excavate the round pen and then fill it right then on the spot. And he already knew these people and it worked out very well. And another example is as we've removed all the vines, we've got at least a full dumpster full. And 
Carson actually works with all these people. He contacted the dumpster company and he's arranging to meet them here and he'll fill the dumpster with all these vines. Initially, we thought that we'd just pile them in the back of the pickup truck and take them to the landfill, but that's not going to work. It would have taken 20, 30, 50 trips with the truck to the landfill. Now, these roots are heavy. They're dirty, but also a good percentage of them are poison ivy. And believe it or not, I actually think I can tell the poison ivy roots from the wisteria roots. They're both horrible. And, uh, oh my gosh, both plentiful. But wisteria is unpleasant to deal with and it is toxic but it will not break your skin open the way poison ivy does. So that's another reason to just not handle all that stuff by uh, hand. So while the earthworks are getting done, we realize like uh, Carson worked for hours to pull up all the vines that he could and he got about a half a dumpster load with you know three to four hours of work it was really hard work even with his equipment but we saw that what happened is it exposed this whole fretwork of what exposed wisteria vines that would just go right through the claws on his machinery but still had to be removed so we got out there and we first of all we never we don't use we haven't used any chemicals on this property anything that wasn't organic in you know since uh 2011 and all of a sudden we're desperate to kill these vines because the poison ivy is terrible for us and the wisteria is very toxic for the horses goats can't even eat it so in trying to kill it, we were advised that we needed to take glyphosate or something even more potent, cut the root, and then paint the root going into the ground with this herbicide. Well, Dave did that for days and days and days. But guess what? It's most effective when the growing conditions are really good for it. Like the poison affects an actively growing plant more than a dormant plant. So when we were starting in the early part of the year, these plants were dormant. So we just set to work to get these just removed pulling and cutting, pulling and cutting, pulling and cutting. And that actually took us to a misadventure because we bought black plastic. And after we pulled and cut everything we could for a work cycle, we covered them with this plastic and weighted it down with logs, thinking that at least we would deprive them of sunlight. So the next work day, uh, 
Dave and Cece peeled back the plastic and Cece looks back to see, you know, how things were. And she said, what kind of snake is that? And Dave came running in to get me. I'm not the world snake expert, but I have worked a fair amount with snakes and I, you know, am a past zookeeper. So I go running out. Well, it was a copperhead. And it sure liked that black plastic. So glad that everybody was cautious. And uh, oh my. Now, we have plan to action. Then we have plants to action. Because I already told you about the wisteria. We call it wisteria hysteria. Because the wisteria that is growing here is not even the Native American form. It is either Chinese or Japanese invasive. And it started out growing up two pine trees. And uh, it spread over 100 feet in every direction. So from this, the two pine trees are about 15 feet apart. And I guess to the west, it only spread about 20 feet. But to the east, it spread at least 100 feet. And to the north, it spread about 200 feet. And so imagine just pulling up all these vines. And these vine roots are about as big in diameter as your thumb or your finger. And we think we have them all and they start sprouting again. Well, we didn't want to cover them with black plastic a second time. So instead, we just keep going out there, cutting these roots and piling them up. Now we have another issue, which is the poison ivy. It also grows up the trees. You don't appreciate how many different kinds of vines grow naturally in your area until you have to deal with them. So invasive vines in this area include the wisteria, poison ivy, English ivy, Virginia creeper. Uh, that one's not invasive. That's a native, but oh boy. Um, I don't know if I mentioned the trumpet vine. Jessamine is another native but it's also toxic and less invasive. There's something called fallopia, which is incredibly invasive. That's also a native at least. And honeysuckle, Japanese honeysuckle. It's terrible. It comes up everywhere. And if you're not on top of it, it's on top of you. We had an entire border on the north side of tall cypress trees. The honeysuckle grows up over the top, smothers it, you know, disconnects it from light and kills the entire tree. So several times a year, we have to go out and pull the honeysuckle off. And no matter how thorough we think we are, we're never thorough enough. 
And it's not our fault either. It's because the birds and probably the squirrels, but definitely the birds are sabotaging our efforts. They go out there and they eat the seeds of and the berries of these various plants. And then they come to our property, roost in a bush, and plant the seeds. So we're constantly finding privets and uh, pecan trees. That would be from squirrels, right? Wax myrtles and more growing right around the foundation of our buildings, the roots coming up between all the roots of the other foundational plants, very difficult to remove. And it's been so discouraging. We're just about to the point where we take out all the plantings around the foundation of the house and do something different because it's so difficult to keep up on these um, trees just sprouting out of nowhere. So for example, we never planted any honeysuckle near our house. And the next thing you know, there's honeysuckle growing out of all the beds right next to the house. Now wax myrtle is another native tree. How did it get next to the house? Well, probably the same thing. But I'm reading along and all of a sudden I read that wax myrtle is flammable, so you should not let it grow next to your house. How bad could it be, right? A little innocent wax myrtle, it smells so good. People, the colonial people used to make candles from it. You just boil the berries. What could go wrong? So I decided to test, because you know the scientific perspective is not to project your ideas, but rather to test them. So I cut down a bunch of wax myrtle and I took it over by the fire pit. So it's fresh and green, right? And I took out one of those long fireplace lighters. And I thought, well, first I'll just see if the leaves will even catch fire. The whole thing just burst into flame. It was a good idea to do it right at the fire pit. Wow. Brand new, fresh green. If it got hit by lightning, it would easily torch your house. Well, if your house got hit by lightning, it might be torched already. However, okay. So the vines that we have to take off are more than one kind. There's also Smilax here, which has little thorns and it and the fallopia both have tubers underground. <laughs> and of course, the one that's the worst from my perspective is the poison ivy because you have to be so careful about touching it. If you don't know, poison ivy can cause a type 4 delayed hypersensitivity, which is a cellular-based immune reaction. What that means is that the immune cells are actually inside your cells. So when you, let's say one year you got poison ivy on your left arm, and the next year you get poison ivy on your right arm, if you scratch and burst those cells that are full of fluid, you damage those cells, you burst them open, it lets loose lysosome, 
which which cause more cells to burst open. And as the signals from the poison ivy get to the old cells that got in, uh, you know, irritated last time, that will burst into an active inflammation also. So you might start out with lesions on your right arm and all of a sudden they're all over your left arm. And if you have had a lot of sensitivities to it, then your whole body could go over. You could have itching in your eyes, in your mouth, in your ears, in your lungs. And for goodness sakes, never burn poison ivy, no matter how tempting it is. So you might not think that you would be throwing the poison ivy on a fire, but here's something that Dave and I almost did. We have a flamethrower weed thing. And we said, man, wouldn't it be easy to just torch all this poison ivy? Just wilt it all? Do not do that. Do not do that. If the wind carries that poison ivy smoke back to you and you inhale it, you can literally die. Don't do that one. Okay, so any other plant problems? Well, thank you for asking. It turns out that many, many, many plants are toxic. And as I studied this, it, 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 it turns out that the horses already know this. They know all about a lot of the toxins that are local. And they include all the nightshades, jimson weed, elderberry, Sudan grass. Uh, there's another kind of grass, buckwheat. A lot of things like daffodils. But there's things that they don't know about too. And some of these things are really dangerous. One of the very worst is you. They're evergreen trees that were often planted at cemeteries. If you're gonna have horses or goats at home, do not have you. And so we had to make sure that if something was toxic, we could protect the horses from it. And some of the things are on their way out. Like we have some azaleas and I love the azaleas, but I love the horses more. And the great thing about the azaleas is, you know how I was talking about the windrow protecting the property? Well, azaleas around the edge of the property, they grow in very dense and thick and tall and their leaves are evergreen. And so they're constantly protecting the house from the wind and from the plant overspray. But they and rhododendron are very toxic for the horses. So is laurel, mountain laurel. So they're on their way out. You're going to have a hard time keeping up with 
plant toxins. So uh, toxic plants. So one of the things we're doing is we're showing the horses. Now, there's a lot of things that Sarah already knows not to eat. So there was a privet that was just accidentally growing at the stable. And I took both horses over to it. Sarah wouldn't go anywhere near it, but a fair did try to taste it. So I told her, no, I told her it's dangerous. I took her by it several times until she wouldn't try to eat it. But there are so many things and especially things that we plant in our gardens where the horses could eat. But there's other things that are much more subtle. So I always thought that clover was good for horses, that they liked it and that it was good, higher protein and um, plenty of vitamins and so on. And that can be true, but it turns out it can also be problematic. So for one thing, it tends to have fungus. And when it has this fungus, it can cause the horses to be sensitized to light, to slobber, and even to bleed. And in extreme cases, it can cause them liver damage or liver failure and even death. Wow. Who knew, right? But it gets worse than that. It can also, there are types of clover that are just poisonous. There are types of vetches. Vetch is just another kind of legume. Um, I think a honey locust is also a legume and that's a tree form of it. And that is... Let me see. I can't remember if the honey locust is toxic, but the black locust is toxic. And I believe it's in that family as well. Now, we know about alfalfa. That's a legume, and it's generally very good for horses. So it's a little complicated. Well, anyway, there's a type of clover which at first I couldn't distinguish from white clover. It's a little pinker than white clover generally is, but white clover gets pink around the bottom edges also. This other type of clover is called, I think, I don't know for sure how it's pronounced. I think it's alcyke or alcyke, and it's pretty toxic. So how can you tell it? Well, compared to white clover that, you know, we, if you're going to look for four leaf clovers, it's often going to be in a white clover patch. The leaves, the, the three lobes to the leaf are more round and they have little white chevrons, kind of silvery chevrons in them. And the flowers are pink. But here's the critical thing. The stems the runners for the white clover are underground and the stems come directly up from the ground singly. So there'll be a single flower or a single shamrock. Whereas alcyke clover kind of looks a lot like it, like the white clover. However, it has branches that run along 
and we'll have lots of different flowers coming up for them and lots of different leaves. Also, the leaves are more elongated than the white clover leaves and they don't have a chevron. Well, we've never planted any alcyke or alcyke clover, so we shouldn't have a problem with it, right? Wrong, there's still birds in the world. We love our birds, but this is an issue. So I was going to bring Sarah to graze in part of our yard. So I have to stand right with her, right? Because there's going to be plants that either she could harm or could harm her. So two things. One is, as I'm looking over the ground before I bring her in, I see a clover that looks a little different. I pull it up and son of a gun, it is this toxic clover. Now it's the only one I found. How did it get there? Why did it get there? You cannot look at every single clover leaf on your property, even if your property is only a few acres. Okay, so this could be a problem. I hope the horses already know about it. But anyway, we did get rid of that one. But then as Sarah was grazing, I glance over and she had knocked apart a large mushroom. It didn't look like she ate any of it, but some of these mushrooms are very toxic. Does Sarah already know about these things? She might. But if she doesn't, it could be fatal just like it could be to us. So the problem with plants is huge and ongoing. I would say that in all of the work we've done to get ready for the horses and to keep the horses here. So I'm including all the work to get the property ready, but also all the work that we've actually put in since they've come to the property to clean, feed, brush, repair, everything. That managing the plants has been the hugest part of the job. Getting rid of the vines and checking for invasive plants and uh, toxic plants. And then on the other side of it, protecting those plants that we want to keep, if they are toxic, you know, protecting both the plant and the horse. And if they're not toxic, pr protecting them from the horses. Wow. I mean, would you ever think that it would be such a challenge? It was so hard for us when we first came here to grow our own vegetables. We thought we'd never be able to do it. And the various places that I went to study how to grow our fruits and vegetables advised us it would take 10 years to really get any good at it. And I suspect a lot of that is because it takes 10 years to get the soil in better shape. But in any, in any case, here we are 10 years later and our gardening is going well, but the biggest problem we have in gardening and horse keeping 
is all the plants that grow that I don't want to grow. Okay, thank you so much for joining me. And I hope that this is useful to somebody that started out like I did, that Dave and I did. And, um, you know, we know something about what we're trying to do, but we're not experts in it. And just to give a bit of orientation, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not a professional plant person, but I've always been involved with plants. I have uh, volunteered in a number of different institutional gardening areas like zoo. Uh, I volunteered at the Norfolk Zoo Horticultural Department, the National Cathedral, Greenhouse, yeah, and I've actually been growing, trying, trying to grow things for many, many years. I never imagined that it would be this complicated. And I never imagined that the problem plants would be the biggest complication. Now, in addition to my plant background, oh, I even took some botany courses in plants, like um, in particular on succession planning, you know, how do you regenerate land that's been used and maybe used up and now you want to return it to a more natural use like grazing or even forest. And in addition, I was a zookeeper and a marine mammal trainer, so I had to manage groups of animals and their facilities. So it included things like buying and storing and processing fish or other food items and uh, the water quality control and water management and building large exhibits and things like that. And then I got an agricultural degree. I got a degree in animal science, but I also studied you know, how you build barns and why you build them certain ways and all the diseases and so on that can happen. Uh, for example, um, I love the idea of barns that are built into the earth because the earth keeps them warmer and, you know, it's very ecological. But you have to know that the animals that live in earth firm barns have a greater incidence of lung problems. So whether it's from radon or fungus or both, um, yeah, that's a thing. Okay, so I had a lot of study and preparation before I did this project, but it wasn't enough. I hope that what we learned is going to benefit you or at least maybe it will entertain you. Thank you so much for joining me tonight and I hope you'll come back. And I thank you for your likes, shares, comments, subscriptions, more to come. Thank you very much. Good night. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from.
Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.